Father, thank you that we can come together in the name of Jesus. And Jesus, you have said where even two or three gather in my name. There I am among them, in the midst of them. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that as we move into this time of honoring, submitting ourselves to, listening to your word, that you come to us, you yourself, in your word, through your word, by your word. And so we open ourselves to you, your word, by your spirit. And we thank you. Thank you that it's good to worship you, to honor you. And thank you that it's good to feed on your word. Feed us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everyone. And it's great to be back. Thank you, everyone. Uh, for your ministry this morning. Thank you, Lindsay, for leading us and connecting us. And I'm hoping um, that, uh, that we've been able to meet together a little bit more, uh, connecting in homes and that kind of thing, as I sent that message out earlier in the week. Hoping there's a few families, a few homes, a few people who've been able to get together this Sunday. And as I mentioned in my message, please pray for us as we begin to think about what uh, level one looks like and, and how we continue as a community of faith following Jesus at a time like this. So we continue in the book of 1 John. Let me ask you this. What comes to mind? What comes to mind if you had to close your eyes and just pause for a moment, like just Breathe, what comes to mind when I say the word love? Or if you were to pause and I were to say, what comes to mind when I say the word light? And what comes to mind when I say the word God? A.W. Tozer famously wrote in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So let's go back to 1 John, his first letter right towards the end of the Bible. And we read uh, as we started last week, and we're going to move to verse 5 this week, but let's pick it up at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared 
to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this to make our joy complete. And this is the message we heard from him and declare to you. And we're going to kind of go deep into this today. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Next week we'll pick up on verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. We do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, verse 7, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all or every sin. This is the message we have heard from him. The source of the message is Jesus himself. Jesus has come with a unique communication and he says our role is to declare it to you and if he thinks about everything what comes to mind when he thinks about Jesus when he thinks about God this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you God is light and this brings us to one of the four God is statements in Scripture. 1 John 4 verse 8 says, God is love. Jesus said, John 4 24, God is spirit. And the writer to the Hebrews says in, in 12 verse 29, God is consuming fire. Those are all true. Today we look at God is light and there's this con constant theme, consistent theme in scripture in which this light uh, versus darkness actually applies in two areas. It's, it's about truth instead of error and truth being illumination, insight, understanding instead of darkness, confusion, uh, misunderstanding, truth light truth and purity and holiness instead of sin and evil god is light god is holy god is true and there is no darkness and notice the like absolutely emphatic statement at all like like not even a little bit, not even, not even a tiny fraction. Today we're going to work towards communion. But the message is from Jesus through the apostles who bear witness to us. And guys, again, we give thanks because they're the ones who heard him. They're the ones who saw him. They're the ones who touched him. This is the message they <clears throat> declare to us. There's one God and he is good and he is true and he is worthy of your trust. There's lots of different messages out there that tell you maybe there isn't one God. Maybe there's, 
there's many. Maybe we get to decide who God is. Maybe we get to decide what God should be like or is like. And when you think about it, it makes no sense. If God is, and we don't even just get to the light part, you know, God's name is I am. If God already is, it makes no difference what we think he ought to be like. The real difference is whether we will discover what he really is like. And for that to happen, he needs to show himself to us. He needs to make himself known. And this is the message we've heard from Jesus and declare to you, God is light. There are many misunderstandings about the nature of God. And John is able to lean into his memory bank of walking with Jesus. And he says, this is the God we worship. This is the one we follow. This is the one we're telling the world about. You see, back in the Roman Empire in the first century, this message was revolutionary. It it overturned a whole bunch of stuff. And of course, the first thing it overturned was the massive polytheism that was evident during those times. The belief in many poly different gods, which was very prominent. And polytheism, one of the things it did is created a chaos culture and a blame culture. You were always wondering which God you'd messed up with, with, which God you'd missed out on pleasing or appeasing, who you didn't sacrifice to. And so when Paul was in Athens, which was a highly rational city, nevertheless, they still had an altar to an unknown God, just in case they'd missed one of them out. And in this chaos worldview, you were never certain who was winning, who was hurting you, who was out to get you, and which human was partnering with that God against you. You didn't know who to oppose. You didn't know who to appease. And there's such a rest in coming to know that there is one God who is and he is light, and there is no darkness in him at all and ever. So out the window goes polytheism. And the other thought systems that were deep into the Greek mind of the day uh, that it overturns was dualism. And we looked at this a little bit, but that good and evil are essentially equal, although opposite. And... And the statement is, no, God, the one and only God, is light. He is good. He is truth. Evil is not his equal. It is his opposite, but it's not his equal. Evil is not eternal. There was a time when it was not. And there will be a time when it will not be. Why does this matter? Well, let me tell you a story from... Like long ago when I was 19 years old and I just moved to a new town and joined a new church. And during this time and kind of just exploring my own faith, understanding something about the presence of God and a relationship that God is inviting us into, I happened to write a prayer which I shared with a small group. The prayer went something like this. 
I want to realize your presence. I, I know you are here, but I want to realize your presence in everything that that means. I want to realize your presence. I want to walk in your light. I want your love to flow through me. I want to be your delight. And I was kind of stepping into, praying into something of what I believed was the biblical truth and motivation behind that simple prayer. And the youth pastor informed me uh, at the study that my prayer was uh, sentimental drivel. Now, <laughs> truth be told, I actually felt sorry for him. I really did. I, I felt sorry for him and engaged him over several weeks and months and tried to understand his reaction. And, and several things became evident and two of them really matter here. The first is <clears throat> that to him, God was an idea, a, a concept, a necessary first cause, a logos, a principle but, but really not personal and actually not even a person. So following Greek philosophy rather than a biblical worldview, he didn't believe, for example, that God had emotions or affections or desires such as love or joy or delight or grief. And he explained away the myriad of biblical texts as merely this anthropomorphic language. Which means, anthropomorphic means that you t uh, Scripture takes something from human experience and projects it onto God in order to explain a greater truth about the idea of God or the principle of God. So, for example, the hand of God, God doesn't have a physical hand because He is spirit. But now, of course, in Jesus, He did, of course, have a physical hand, but I won't go there. But the hand of God is, as it were, a metaphor for God in action or the, the work of God on the earth. Now, recognizing anthropomorphic content in the revelation of God is obviously very important. But my friend was just taking this way too far. And in spite of all the evidence of God being person, and in fact God being one yet three persons that we come to know and love, his rigid ideas kept him from seeing what John saw in Jesus and is proclaiming to us. That there's someone from whose very center, whose very essence comes thoughts and words and affections that are of their nature, light. They are safe. They are true. They are pure. They are noble. They are lovely. They are admirable. They are love. And they are, in its essence, a consuming fire. And it was like he just couldn't hear. Just, just couldn't hear. Couldn't see. I, Reminds me of, an, uh, of a story of an old gentleman who went to the doctor 
And after his own consultation, he, he mentioned to the doctor that he was worried about his wife, in particular, her hearing. And he was concerned his wife was losing her hearing. And so the doctor suggested a subtle experiment. Just approach her from behind and speak normally and see at which point she is evidently able to hear you. So he came home and he saw her in the kitchen. And so from a bit of a distance, he said to her, uh, Honey, what's for supper? And there was no response. And so he stepped a bit closer, repeated the question. And still no response. He stepped a bit closer. Honey, what's for supper? There was still no answer. Now his heart's really sore. So he steps up right behind her and says, My love, what's for supper? And she turns around where she's chopping the vegetables, points his knife at him and says, For the fourth time, Earl, chicken! Sometimes we think someone's not listening. Someone's not getting it. And it might just be that we have to think about what we're hearing or not hearing. And it's not that the evidence isn't there in God's word. It's sometimes that the blockage is within us. And it's, it's almost as if we, know, we end up saying, I know the Bible says, but. <laughs> so we have to ask ourselves, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Can I hear this? Can I accept this? Can I internalize this? Really own this? God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Let me ask you another question. So what would God be like if he were fully human? I mean, like us in every way, except that he was God. John's confident answer is he would be exactly like Jesus. And John says, we heard him, we saw him, we touched him, we know and by the way, as we see in chapter 2, verse 6, what would we be like if in our humanity we became godly? The answer is we'd be like Jesus. <laughs> we will walk as Jesus did. And so there is this good, loving, true, personal God reaching out to you through Jesus. Second thing, my unfortunate, my, my friend unfortunately believed was that God willed, actively willed evil and harm. You see, in trying to avoid the error of dualism, the belief that evil is an equal and opposite uh, force to God instead of temporary and inferior, he moved evil inside, he took it from over there as an opponent and he moved it inside God. And he insisted on a kind of monism in which evil was by the direct and active will of God. Theologically, he, he was overstating the sovereignty of God. And his reason is, was that because God is so totally sovereign in control, nothing can happen without his express and deliberate will. 
not just permission, but will. And so that he insisted that we should assign evil to God. And I'll leave it to your imagination as to how our Bible studies actually played out. And, and sadly, this clever man after some years in ministry um, actually turned from and renounced his faith altogether. And the crazy thing was is that I'm not sure he ever encountered the grace he was trying to tell other people about. If only he could have listened to John. If only he could have internalized this message. This, this disciple who saw himself as the one Jesus loved. And it reminds us God is light. There's no darkness. Later, God is love. Now, I need to be careful here. We're not ignoring sovereignty. I'm just deliberately not following some people's definition of sovereignty. But we don't ignore God as the king over us all and the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed. But God, through Jesus and through the rest of scripture, qualifies his own sovereignty in very important ways. Take, for example, the first two parables of Matthew chapter 13. First one is the parable of the sower. I don't know if you remember it, but seed gets scattered into different types of soil and there are different responses from the soil. And the main point of the parable is this, without going into it, is that by God's design, the outcome of the kingdom is contingent upon the response and the condition of my heart in my life and in the influence I have in God's world around me. It's very important. God has made the outcome of his kingdom in some ways temporarily contingent upon the response and condition of my heart. And following this is the parable of the wheat and the weeds growing in the same field, which is the field, or Jesus explains, is the world. And the main point of this parable is that the kingdom of heaven God's will being done on earth comes through people that Jesus alone is able to plant, able to establish, able to locate in the world. And a very significant subpoint of the parable is that when people go, where did the bad stuff come from? Jesus insists that evil is not sown by the Lord, but by the enemy. God only sows good seed. So God does not accept responsibility for activating any evil. And it is fundamentally misguided to ascribe evil to God. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God doesn't have any evil to give away. Jesus shows us, according to John, this is the message we've heard from him, declared to you. God is light. God is not the source of evil, harm, or darkness. But importantly, back to the parable, God accepts responsibility for temporarily permitting evil. But the parable makes clear two things. The reason for that is actually his goodness. It's actually that he is light and love because he does not want to harm 
wheat that, uh, that looks maybe like it should be pulled out, but actually will be shown one day to be the real, the real thing. And so God is being patient with us, allowing us time to turn to him. The other thing the parable makes very clear is that God in his goodness, being light, will hold to account all those who do evil. And they, this, is, this, this permission is temporary because one day, a day of certainty is coming. And make no mistake, God's goodness will be seen and his sovereignty will deal with all evil. And when we pray for his kingdom to come, we are praying for judgment. We are. We pray that he'd put the wrongs right, that he would deal with injustice, that he would overthrow the evil, and that he would shut down all the things that cause harm and everything that is dark. And Jesus promises us this is going to happen, but he explains why the evil remains. Make no mistake. mistake. God, God is not the author of the darkness, not the author of evil. By giving us time to turn. And this gives context to some of the Old uh, Testament passages that my pastor friend overstated. In which God appears to be. And there are some passages in which God appears to be the cause of evil and harm. Overwhelmingly these passages, and there isn't time this morning to go to all of them. I want to get to communion. Speak of the judgment of our good God acting in righteousness handing us over to the consequences of our sinful choices. And these consequences, where we reap what we sow, are precisely because he does not want us to entertain evil or darkness. And then there's an important subset of this, as it were, uh, these passages, in which the Old Testament is dealing with Israel's idolatry, and the temptation for them to turn to polytheism. Remember, the nations around Israel pretty much had a God for everything. A God of fertility, a God of prosperity, a God of war, a God of healing, a God of love, etc., etc. Now, the underlying logic of many of the passages in which we think God is saying, I am against you, I am causing harm, is this. If in your sin, if in your choices, if in your idolatry, I, the Lord, in righteousness, for your sake and mine, hand you over to the very idols and spirits you have chosen, and for a time I shut the heavens, or for a time I hand you over to, to lack or sickness, or to your enemies and they conquer you, don't turn to some idol of war or love or prosperity or fertility. Don't go there. Turn to me. I am the one that you deal with. Nobody else. Because I am the one who handed you over to that shut heaven or to that enemy. And God has done that for your sake. So in Matthew 18... Jesus, in talking about the consequences of unforgiveness, says your heavenly Father hands you over to tormentors. For example, when you choose the idol of unforgiveness, does he want you there? 
Is he the cause of evil? No. God is light. There's no darkness in him. But he lets you go there by your choice. And that is the qualification of the biblical qualification of the undeniable fact that God is sovereign and king. God permits these things. Being patient with us, giving us time and opportunity to turn to him, to recognize darkness, turn from it. And he calls us into the openness of darkness, out of darkness into light, out of hiding into encounter, out of concealment into vulnerability. And we're going to come to this next week. But verse 7, as we go to communion, is really important. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. Now notice this. We are called to deliberately create a community of high trust, high vulnerability, high transparency, a community in the light, walking in the light that has fellowship with one another, where it is safe for us to step out of hiding, out of concealment, out of our darkness, and into communion with one another. And this means that effective biblical Honesty, transparency, vulnerability, and confession has a communal aspect. And it is in this prayerful communal fellowship with one another where we're able to step out of concealment into the God who is light. You know, often we try and deal with our stuff just by ourselves. And the passage is, is actually so pastoral. Remember I said a couple of weeks ago, you know, we're invited into a community, not just a personal relationship with God, but a community that is in fellowship with God. Of course it's personal, but it's not, it doesn't stop there. And, and now the passage is showing us that it doesn't even start there. That, that if I want to walk with God, I want to step into the fellowship of the light and let people minister light and goodness to me. And those of us, for example, who've done the Lamb course, the Love After Marriage course, know exactly what I'm, I'm talking about. You experience the power of the grace of God and the blood of Jesus when you step into the light together in loving and safe community and fellowship. And so this is why on, on the Thursday I invited you to maybe invite someone over. Now maybe not all of you have been able to do this and I'm hoping you maybe just give someone a call so that, that you can pray with them. Pray for them. Let them pray for you. Step into this place of vulnerability of saying this is how I'm doing. This is how I'm feeling. This is what God offers you in Jesus. To build deep trust that over time leads to safe, life-giving relationships in which you can experience the hearing, the seeing, the touching of the goodness and the forgiveness of God. You see, if we walk in the light as 
He is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. And the, and the power of the fellowship we have with God and with His Son by the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all, and the passage can mean every sin. Not just all generic, every single one. Its power can be broken. Its judgment can be removed. Its shame can be washed away because of the blood of Jesus. So we want to come to right now. Just give me a moment. To the communion table. And we want to come together. Isn't it wonderful that in fellowship with one another, we step into light and the blood of Jesus through his body broken for us, purifies us from all sin, purifies us from all sin. And today his mercy is new, fully loaded and ready to minister to us. And so, as you take the bread, let's share it with one another. Let's share it as we give thanks for His body broken for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your body was broken for us. We thank you that you have not protected yourself but that for the joy that was set before you, you went to the cross, scorning its shame. And so we come, in a sense, in a different way, now as your body, your body broken on the cross, and in our communion, your body now restored to wholeness in our fellowship. I pray that as we talk with one another, pray for each other, open up our hearts to one another, that you will make us whole. Amen. Let's eat together. And then we come to the cup his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sin. The blood of Jesus, his son, that purifies us from all, from every sin. Hebrews 9, 14. How much more then will the blood of Jesus, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse your consciences from acts that lead to death? And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you cleanse us. You cleanse our past in a forensic way, but you also cleanse our present. You cleanse our consciences in a deeply personal way in which the thing that told us that we are broken and damaged and lost and in trouble is released and the shame and the guilt is removed. And so we come thanking you for the blood of Jesus.
so Father, I pray that as we just continue to maybe share, connect with one another, pray together, that our fellowship will be with you and with your Son and with the Holy Spirit. For now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus and the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all as you minister to one another, as you share with each other. In Jesus' name.